Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's a millennial face-off. Are today's 20-somethings just a bunch of moaning minis? Or should we have sympathy for their financial plight? Two FT columnists, Janan Ganesh and Amy Williams, thrash it out. Does loyalty pay when it comes to store cards? Our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, reveals how shoppers can game the system in their favour. And in times of stock market volatility, is it possible to quantify political risks? John Redwood pops by to explain his latest theory. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues and columnists. The millennials do not realise how lucky they are. That was the provocative title of the latest column from Janan Ganesh, the FT's political commentator. In it, he argues that the millennials, that's people born between 1980 and the mid-1990s, might moan about not being able to buy a house, but on the whole, they have a much better lifestyle than those born in the 1960s. Janan, welcome to the FT Money Show. So talk us through your argument, which has caused a storm on the internet. Well, on a macro world historical level, had you been born one or two generations ago, you'd be living during the Cold War. Uh, There was a non-trivial chance of being conscripted into a total war, uh, which only happened two or three generations ago. On a more day-to-day technological level, you wouldn't have had the internet. Had it been three or four generations ago, you wouldn't have had the motor car or refrigeration. You'd have had to make your own clothes. Your day-by-day lifestyle would have been inconceivably worse and we take all of that stuff for granted maybe because we can't measure it in economic data and focus instead on things like how income relates to property prices which has indeed deteriorated for this generation compared to its predecessors and I think it's it's a very narrow view of judging how well your generation does compared to its forebears and the way to reduce it to a to a simple test is to ask people if you take absolutely everything into the round Would you rather be born in, say, 1990 or 1960? Anyone who tells me they would rather be born in 1960, I think, is lying to themselves or lying to me. Okay. now in the opposing corner, I have Amy Williams, FT Money's millennial money columnist. She's responded to your piece naturally in the form of another column in FT Money this week entitled, Is it so wrong for millennials to demand better? So, Amy, are you not grateful for your smartphone? I am very grateful for my smartphone. And in many ways, I agree with everything Janelle has just said. But 
I don't think it's relevant. So arguing that society tends towards technological and social progress, that's fine, but it doesn't make up for the fact that millennials in relative wealth terms are doing much worse than their older counterparts and there is no justification for this. And it's the politicians, you think, who were rewarding the retired generation rather than the young generation. Yes. Um, and we could either say that this is ideological. So older people have worked very hard for a long time and paid into their pension and they should get the retirement they deserve. Or more cynically, we could look at the voting statistics, which Janan also mentions in his column. And the fact is that young people don't tend to vote. Now, at this juncture, I feel I should make clear that both of our writers are millennials, although Janan is a few years older than Amy. Judging by the comments on your piece on FT.com, I think many readers assumed that you were older, Janan. But you've extolled the joy of renting, for example, in previous columns. Do you feel that you've had a worse deal financially as a millennial yourself? I may have had a slightly worse deal. Again, I say that there is economic data to suggest that because of wage stagnation, because of the way incomes relate to property prices, because of the relative prosperity of my generation compared to pensioners today, on all sorts of economic metrics, I might be worse off than uh, the people who have come before me. But my point is that that data doesn't capture more than a narrow slice of what life is. When I say things like previous generations didn't have the internet, they didn't have cheap flights, they didn't have the ability to communicate with people on the other side of the world for a cost that is close to zero, mm. they didn't have uh, really boundless entertainment options, they didn't have fairly consistent peace and prosperity. The answer cannot be, yeah, but apart from that, you can't dwell entirely on one or two fairly narrow economic metrics. So I may be worse off on those narrow measures than I, than, than I might have been had I been born 50 years earlier. I just don't think that accounts for the full spectrum of what living is. And on top of that, I would suggest that uh, if young people don't vote, we assume it's because they're alienated. We assume it's because they're so shut up by the, by the system that they're angry and they withhold their, their franchise. It could be the case that they have better things to do or they're not so engaged, they're not so angry that they're motivated to go out to the polls. And yet we always go for the worst case interpretation of their refusal to vote. Now, Amy, you say in your piece, 20-somethings, why aren't they protesting about the injustice of the pension triple lock outside Parliament? What's your answer to that question? Well, I think on the pensions issue, the broad argument is that it's very difficult to engage young people on that particular issue anyway. There's also an interesting study from the Citizens Advice Bureau last November that found a correlation between financial security and political engagement. So the more financially secure you feel, the more likely you are to have a positive attitude towards engaging with democratic processes. So in short, you're less likely to vote if you feel financially insecure, which we know that lots of millennials probably do. There's also a book called Scarcity by two interesting economists, and they argue, which is kind of a common sense argument, that if people, as Janan says, have better things to be doing, they don't vote. But if you're very poor, then your better thing to be doing is worrying about money and how you're going to find some. So that's another argument that could be made. For so it's, it's the struggle of life that's um, preventing, preventing the protesters. Well, finally to Janan, I mean, this seems to be a point on which you both agree. You think that generational politics is a, is a misnomer. Yeah, I think intergenerational politics almost doesn't exist. And what really matters is intragenerational politics. And the way I would crystallise it, I will not inherit a huge wadge of cash from my dad, which will allow me to buy a massive house in uh, zones one or two of London. And I'm fine with that because 
the renting market I think works pretty well and I can live in a really amazing place for 2% yield on the property, which is a kind of little miracle that we never notice. But generational peers of mine will inherit a cheque for, or they're just going to be given a cheque for 500 grand, which is the you know, basis of a deposit for a, a really stunning property in London. And that antagonises me more than the fact that someone who's 55 will retire on a better pension uh, and public policy is slightly skewed towards them compared to someone who's uh, just turned 34 like me. So it's the inequalities within generations, not between generations, that I think deserves much more attention. Well, thanks very much there to Janan Ganesh, the FT's political commentator, and Amy Williams from FT Money. You can read her latest Millennial Money column for free right now on ft.com slash money. As we move towards a cashless society, the only reason many of us still have wallets is because we need a place to keep our growing collection of store cards. My Waitrose, Nectar, Club Card, Boots Advantage, and now the new, and in my view fairly useless, Sparks Card. Are any of them really worth having? Our money mentor, Lindsay Cook, has been busy finding out. Lindsay, welcome to The Money Show. Firstly, hit me with some statistics. How loyal are we as a nation of shoppers? Shockingly loyal. 92% of us have at least one store card. 19 million have Nectar card. 16 million have a Tesco club card. You go out with anybody and they've got half a dozen in there. Having carefully collected those points, it's very common that we, we forget to, to spend them. I mean, there's one survey you cited in the piece saying a, a shocking level um, are going unspent, potentially. Uh, about £6 billion in the top 10 loyalty cards, um, and that's £6 billion of pounds that could be uh, redeemed, um, tends to just get lost. People have it and they forget. And some of the cards have two years for you to spend the points. Other cards, if you don't use a card at all for a year with a Nectar card, you lose the points on it. Or if you try to go to an alien store, one that's not your own, uh, and you haven't been there during the year, they won't let you cash your points in, even though it's a Sainsbury's and you've accrued the points with another Sainsbury's branch. Now, the big revelation in your piece is that although stores refer to these cards as loyalty cards, you actually get sent better offers through the post if you're disloyal. Yes, I know. I learned this first of all. I have a sister who lives in a town where there are lots of stores. So she always used to get lots of vouchers saying, come in, spend £30, we'll give you £6 off. And she'd send them to me in the post. Uh, <laughs> they stopped that, though, because they now insist you have the card number that's on the voucher. But I've got three Nectar cards in my household. My son's not the greatest shopper. But do you know what? He gets all the good offers. So I take his card shopping some of the time. And when I've rested mine for a month, I then get some offers through the post. And these are not measly spend £60, get double the points. They are spend £50, get £7 off. Now, if you're doing a weekly shop, that's doable. If you don't spend £50, don't spend more just to get the £7 off. But overall, you've got to play them. And they try and play you. But you've got to win. Now, in your article, you set out the benefits of each store card for the major supermarkets. What would you say is the best one for your average FT money reader? For an FT money reader who lives probably in the home counties, I would have said my Waitrose because you've got the free tea and coffee. Now, if they offered the FT on a Saturday, that would be worth it. But you can get other papers that are quite expensive on Saturdays and they're cheaper in the week. You get the loyalty, pick your own 
favourite items and you can nominate 10 of these and get 20% off. And if you're quite canny, you'll choose things like coffee, maybe a little bit of alcohol. There's a big beef joint if you like that quite regularly. Um, Choose them carefully. And if you've got a partner, both get a card and go shopping together. But make sure you put the right item in the right trolley. Otherwise, you might not get your loyalty um, discount. Yes, you have to pay for them separately in order to get 20% off 20 different Waitrose items. Now, the most complained about card, on the other hand, in your view, is... I'm afraid the Sparks card. Now, it has been a great success. It was launched six months ago. It's already got 3.8 million users. And the first use for everybody was 10% off food. So that was a good deal. Since then, quite a few people have complained that um, they only offer general merchandise or very few food items for discounts. I spoke with Marks and Spencer and they say they are trying to profile people better so we get more targeted offers. And they do say that originally it was a change of offers once a week. Customers complained that they couldn't get into the shops in time to get the offer that they wanted. So now offers last for a fortnight. So they are listening, but it's still customers grumbling. Okay. Well, you can read Lindsay's full cover feature, The True Cost of Loyalty in FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read online ft.com slash money and follow us on Twitter at FT Money. We move now to the markets. Investors say they are worried about political risk and sometimes they are indeed right to be. But how do you quantify this? I'm joined by John Redwood, the politician, FT Money columnist and chair of the Charles Stanley Pan-Asset Investment Committee. John, thanks for joining us today. You've come up with a theory for calculating political risk in your column this week. Talk us through it. Yes, it struck me very, very much reading and listening to investment experts over the years. that They, they quantify everything about the economy and incomes and share prices and dividends. And then every now and again, there's very clearly a big political risk in the market, but nobody works out how to foresee that or, or quantify it in the same way that they do on all the economic risks. So I've, I've been looking at back histories and numbers, and it seems to me that the, the risk in a democratic state definitely increases when the two main parties that usually alternate in government lose traction with the public and you get lots of challenger parties, more extreme parties, fragmentation of the political process, need for coalitions, unstable governments. And what we're seeing at the moment, particularly in in Europe, is, is a trend to more and more political instability because the two main parties in most of the continental countries have lost traction. Uh, We've now got Ireland and Spain unable to form a government at all. We've got a coalition in Germany which is losing votes massively to challenger parties. Uh, We've got a lot of fragmentation in Italy and, of course, in Greece, complete meltdown, uh, where the two main parties more or less disappeared and a new challenger party emerged into government. And this is particularly pertinent for investors in European equities. How would you correlate what's going on in the political sphere with what's going on in the markets? Well, I think people should watch because when when the polls start to dip too much for the two main parties, you should ascribe more political risk to that particular country within Europe. And I think when you look at the European space as a whole, you have to say there is a lot more political risk now than there was 10 years ago. I think a lot of that is to do with the advent of the euro. Mm. Uh, because it means that electorates in different European countries in the euro 
can express any economic preference they like, but it won't be reflected in policy because the euro has its own controlling policy. But it's happening in countries outside the euro area as well to a, a lesser extent, and you can see the attrition of the main parties. And even in the United States of America, which has rather more political stability and where the two main parties still dominate mm. the, the political landscape, what is happening there is a rather similar process is happening within the two main parties. And so you've had these riveting electoral contests within both the Republican and the Democrat movement, uh, with a challenger of the, the left, a proper socialist challenger, causing a bit of trouble for Hillary Clinton, who I expect will end up with the nomination, but it's driving her to the leftwards in her policy making. And then the Republicans losing complete control, the establishment not in control of their election, with two main challengers now, um, dominated by Mr. Trump, but also Mr. Cruz, that the establishment just don't want. Yes, it's quite extraordinary. Now, you make two predictions in your column. More uncertainty, more populism. Yes, indeed. I, I think populism is on the rise in America and, and Europe uh, because I think in, in both societies there are large groups of working people who feel their wages haven't gone up or may even have gone down in real terms, who feel there's too much labour competition around, uh, who become rather resentful of rapid migration, uh, who feel that they're not getting the first world deal which others in their society are getting. And that is fueling these protest parties of the left and the right, the populist, populist movements of Syriza in Greece and Trump in America. And I think it does mean that all investors have to recognise that there's a strong feeling now that the shares between capital and labour income are not thought to be fair by a lot of people and there will be political expression to this. Well, thanks very much. That was John Redwood. You can read his full column in FT Money this weekend. We'd love to know what you think about the store card wars, millennial moaning, or about money matters more generally. You can get in touch with us via email, our address, money at ft.com, or you can tweet us at FT Money. And you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website at ft.com slash money. There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this weekend's issue. Merrin Somerset Webb, our star columnist and Edinburgh resident, writes on Scottish taxes. I find out how wealthy pensioners can give back unwanted universal benefits like the winter fuel allowance. And as usual, we have the latest share tips and director's deals from the Investors Chronicle. The Money Show was produced and edited in London by Adam Palin. We will be back next week. But for now, it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.